Are you ready to get fired up? Welcome to the Spitfire Podcast. We're talking to Spitfire leaders in business, communities, and in their everyday life. Now, what makes someone a Spitfire? It's someone who is unapologetically themselves, who is aligned in how they think, speak, and act. It's a person who emits and exudes confidence, gratitude, and compassion wherever they go. It's someone who naturally sparks creativity, innovation, and trust with the people around them. It's an individual who recognizes and appreciates the spitfire energy in others. Want to get activated? Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also visit spitfirecoach.com to listen to past episodes. Now let's spit some fire. Um, yeah, so I'm fired up because I'm writing a book about this. And uh, this weekend was my book boot camp to try to get clear on my saleable idea about it. And so I'm really fired up. This is very timely because I believe that you know we have to start having more of these conversations um, in order for us to have true equity, uh, not only for healthcare, but uh, in the workplace too. Fan freaking tastic. Well, I'm glad you're fired up because uh, when I looked at your um, input for scheduling this, all of the letters that you selected were in the fire part. <laughs> yes. The, yes. The fierceness, the resiliency, the empowerment. So I'm really curious, what has Amanda Layden fired up? Yeah. So what has me fired up is the way that women are treated in the medical industrial complex and how we're dismissed we are undiagnosed, misdiagnosed, not taken seriously. And this is coming from an educated white woman. So I'm really fired up because the system needs to change. We need to start taking women seriously and we need to start uh, sounding the siren call for better healthcare for women and creating true um, equity in the system. Like stop dismissing us. Uh, and, you know, this has affected women throughout the ages and women of color uh, disproportionately, but also when it comes to women's health care, you know, we just, the system is broken and the system needs to be blown up um, and re, uh, you know, blown up and put back together. The pieces need to be put back together in a way that actually makes sense for, for women to actually get the health care and the care that we need and we deserve, and we need to be valued. Society just doesn't value us enough. Mm. So paint for me the picture that you are pointing towards as you're envisioning this equitable, open, resourceful. Don't let me put words into your mouth of what you envision, but but I'm so curious because this is a coaching tool. If you're paying attention, listeners, you have to envision the positive outcome you want in order to start building towards it. So let's start from where you want to see it go. Yeah. So I think first and foremost, uh, women need to have the toolkit to be able to advocate for themselves and to be able to ask the right questions of their doctors and demand that their doctors listen to them. Um, I can share my story in terms of, you know, being dismissed for many, many years about my symptoms and ultimately getting diagnosed about four years ago 
which is something that could have been treated for many years. And because my doctors were just like, nope, that's normal. No, no, no. You just have bad periods. You just have bad periods and not listening to me. So if people aren't aware, we're about to talk about women's healthcare and, and I see from period to pause. So from period to menopause and opening the doors for understanding and normalizing conversations, um, everything from period to when you go through menopause. So from a young age and Lauren, I don't know about you, but when I got my period, there were things that were taboo. We just didn't talk about it. And then you don't know if what you're experiencing is normal. And we don't talk about everything in between from disease to uh, fertility, to fertility issues, to everything else we might be facing. So I think there's a couple of things. Number one, normalizing the conversation, you know, what we go through as women every single month is a natural process but there are things that occur with it that may not be healthy for you, may not be good for you. And if we're not talking about that as women, then how are we supposed to know? So normalizing the conversation, giving women a toolkit to be able to advocate for themselves in their doctor's offices, regardless of what socioeconomic status you have. Um, and also, you know, really saying we deserve better in our doctor's offices, in the healthcare system. And then I would also like to see a healthcare system that treats everybody, again, regardless of socioeconomic status, your insurance status, um, you know, treats everybody with respect. And that doesn't happen right now. Yeah. It sounds like there just needs to be a humanization and decency and integrity and, you know, all of these things, you know, I have these conversations about all different levels of society of when we lose our humanity, when we when we cast people into a label or a box and we dehumanize them and don't make them as important as other things, or we just lower the importance of their experience, we're missing out on so much. Yeah. And, you know, we see that in the healthcare system where our pain is dismissed. It's not taken as seriously as uh, men's pain or men's symptoms. And then if you look at some of the statistics um, especially with women of color in the healthcare system, not being prescribed drugs when um, they are in pain, um, not being listened to. I mean, you think about that dehumanization of not taking somebody seriously and what that strips away from your, um, you know, your psyche and also not feeling psychologically safe in a place where they're supposed to look after you. I mean, these people have taken the Hippocratic oath and they're not taking people seriously because the system is based on a patriarchal money-making system. And so everybody is trained in the same way. And now I'm not saying there aren't amazing doctors out there. There absolutely are. There are amazing healthcare practitioners out there, but there has, there's something wrong when you go through 20 years of your life and debilitating pain, which was my case. Um, and you're just told, no, that's normal mm -hmm. 20 years. Yeah. And then, and so for my story, I mean, it ultimately led to me not being able to carry a baby to full term um, and going through. So I have something called adenomyosis, which often goes undiagnosed. And it's, I think statistically, there's probably one out of every 10 women who have it mm -hmm. um, and then just don't get diagnosed. And so what does that mean? Oftentimes we have fertility issues when you have that disease, which was my case. Um, and then, you know, we went through several rounds of IVF 
which with adenomyosis, it's like if you have a garden and you have weeds and you're watering those weeds, it makes it a million times worse. That was my case. And so ultimately um, ended up having to have a hysterectomy and have my uterus removed. Um, This was just last November, so not too long ago. But I went through this entire process of, you know, as I say, from period to pause, I'm not going through menopause because I still have my ovaries, but, you know, everything in between. And you know how frustrating it is to not be taken seriously. And even I'll tell you, even the last doctor's appointment before I got diagnosed, I was with my OBGYN and I said, is there a test you can do? Is there something you can look at? Is there an ultrasound? Is there something you can do? Because, you know, it doesn't feel normal to me that every time I get my period, I'm debilitated and I'm bent over in pain. I'm vomiting. I can't work for two days. So I have to plan client meetings around my period. I've been doing that for years. And her answer was, no, you just have bad periods. This was four years ago. I'm not talking about 20 years ago, 15 years ago. This was four years ago. And there are tests to diagnose this. And so you think about that. And I can't even imagine what it must feel like to be somebody who isn't um, as well equipped to navigate navigate the medical system yeah. and what that must feel like as a human being. Yeah. I mean, I'm immediately thinking of all of, all of these communities where you are taught to respect authority where mm. if you have a doc, if you have a PhD, if you are in a position of authority, you keep your mouth shut and you go along with it because it's seen as disrespectful. Or if you do advocate for yourself, then you get typecasted as the crazy one or yeah. erratic or hysterical. I mean, that's how they type, that's how they labeled women for so long. Yeah. We were just getting our period. <laughs> right. And, you know, and, or they say, did you go to medical school? Yeah. No, but I live inside of this body. And what I'm telling you is that I know something is wrong. And so there's, I I get on my like pulpit around this because I also feel like, you know, we are so equipped in this society to believe that our worth as a woman is tied to whether or not you can become a mother. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, we have so much other value. And I even say right now, you know, part of me talking about this, there's another birthing I'm going through, which is birthing this conversation, this mission in the world, you know, the piece of fire in me that knows that something has to change in the system. And so, you know, we are so much more than what our bodies can produce. And I also think that conversation needs to shift. Right. We're so much more. That's what on on the outside, but also so much more than whether or not we are able to carry a baby to um, full term. So that is that's something else that I get really fired up about. And I also you know what I believe I want to create this year for people is are actually conversation guides around what to say when. So, Mm. you know, I went through a couple of miscarriages and the one that was more in the public domain that people knew, not public domain, but like public in terms of friends and family, they knew we were pregnant. They knew I was expecting. And the things that people say (laughs) when you go through a loss, Mm -hmm. it's not even, it could be, you know, a loss of, um, you know, a parent or a spouse or something. But in my case, it was the loss of, you know, something we had tried for so long to have. And um, when we lost the babies, you know, people were like, "Mm, God has a plan or don't worry, you got pregnant once. So, and, and it's 
so infuriating or, well, how long, how far along were you? Oh, well, that's not that far along. You know, it's like, so I want to pause you for a second. Yeah. Translate that and how you received it for the people who have gone out there and said something like that to someone. Well, first of all, it's beyond infuriating. It's um, very dismissive. It's kind of cruel, you know? I mean, it feels so awful when people say something like that. And I don't expect everybody to have an understanding of what we went through because people weren't behind the scenes. They didn't know what was going on. We weren't telling people about it. We didn't tell people how many rounds of IVF we'd gone through um, and what a struggle it was. But it is it is like, it makes you like, even now I'm getting like a visceral reaction. It makes me sick to my stomach to think that that's what somebody could say. So I want to flip that conversation Mm -hmm. and have people, you know, be kind and not offer unsolicited advice either. That is not what anybody needs. Who's experiencing a loss or even dismissive of, well, you were only 12 weeks along. So you know, but it was still in our minds, we were still having a child. And so it doesn't matter how far along you are. You know, I think I'm using this as one example because you could insert this in a lot of other ways into other things. Um, whether it's again, being diagnosed with a disease that people don't understand or, um, having, you know, even if you do unfortunately have bad periods or something and people are just dismissive or they don't believe you or they don't know the, you know, the next thing to say. And sometimes I'm like, if you don't know what to say to somebody around it, just, you know, say, you're sorry, say you're here to listen. Don't say anything at all. (laughs) Like, um, don't put your foot in it and make somebody feel even worse. And, you know, we see that in a lot of ways in society. So yeah, part of, you know, you asked me, I think this conversation started with you saying, what do you imagine in the future? And what I imagine in the future is people being equipped with a toolkit as well Mm -hmm. to be kinder, to, um, you know, be able to hold space for other folks and just to know, you know, what you can and can't say. And I even imagine using that in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So you think about, um, you know, I'm not the only woman in the world who has gone through this and I can't even imagine what it would have been like had I had an employer. So, you know, because I'm self-employed, I could take time off. Um, I could, you know, I didn't have to make excuses for uh, going to get my blood drawn every single morning when you're going through IVF. I don't know. I mean, there's probably listeners here that have gone through IVF or going through IVF. It is so hard. It is so hard on your body. Um, It is hard emotionally. And part of IVF is that you get your blood drawn when you're in the cycle almost every single day. And so can you imagine if you're working for an employer, what you're telling them, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't, you can't share those things sometimes, or sometimes you don't want to. So I think part of this too, is being able to equip managers, leaders to understand what women are going through again, from every stage of the healthcare process and what they're dealing with. So that's what I also imagine in the future is being able to, when we normalize these conversations and when we have that, and when, when we're able to um, feel safe to have a conversation in our friendship circles and our family circles and in the workplace that managers, leaders also have a toolkit to navigate, to be able to support their employees who are going through this. Yeah. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head before when you said psychological safety, because this is the ground floor of inclusion safety. And if people don't feel like they belong or that they have to show up differently 
to navigate their workplace, to navigate whatever environment they're in, they're code switching. And so they can't come from a place of being able to speak to what they need. They're doing a dance all the time, which means they're not present and giving their all and showing up aligned in who they are and and really activating their spitfire power. Yeah. Um, It's so true. And, you know, I was, as you were talking, I was just thinking too, you know, the way other ways in which we see this show up in society, for example, is when people will make jokes to women, like, oh, is it that time of the month? And, you know, first of all, that's just ridiculous that you would ever equate, um, you know, a natural thing such as a period with uh, a woman being, you know, standing up for herself or advocating for herself or being firm or telling it like it is, you know, like, like all of those things that get equated with something that's a natural process for a woman in a negative light. And also, you know, if that happens, and I can recall when, you know, people said that to me, that the hormones, when you're going through something like IVF are really, you know, they're, they're raging and there's things you can't control. And there's behaviors sometimes that you can't control because of what they're putting in your body. And so, you know, again, these are things where I think we're starting to learn a lot about how we approach, um, people in a, in a better way and and what we say to them, but this is also something that needs to come out of our vernacular when we're talking to young women, uh, all the way up to women who are experiencing, um, whether it's childbirth or a disease or menopause or whatever it is, you know, we need to start shifting the conversation in a positive way, um, in a way that says, Hey, you know, we as society know your bodies can do something incredible and your period is something natural and let's stop you know, using phrases like, oh, is it that time of the month in a derogatory way towards women? That is just putting us back um, in the dark ages. And, you know, I want also young women to know that their bodies are powerful, that um, they have choice over them to take uh, their ownership back over their bodies. And, you know, I want women to feel that at every stage of the process, wherever they are. Yeah. So imagine that there is the younger version of you listening to this podcast. You can take it back as far as you want. What do you want her to hear? Uh, I would tell her that you know exactly what you're talking about. And um, because, so if if I think about my younger self, I actually think about when I was 16 um, and that's the age I first got my period. And from the age of 16, I would be in so much pain and vomiting every month for my period. And, you know, again, just dismissed. And so, and I just remember at school sometimes being so sick and having to go to school and vomiting in the trash can in one of my classes in high school. Mm -hmm. And so I would just say to her, you know, really your instincts are right. And you know, your body more than anybody else and stand up and keep shouting about how something is wrong and don't stop until somebody listens. Um, and you know, it's okay for you to take ownership and to say that doctor isn't working for me and move on Yeah, and to tell the doctors, um, to give them hell. I mean, <laughs> like really <laughs> it's, it's so funny that you're, you're bringing this up at 16. Cause I have a very vivid memory of myself at that age. So I had Lyme disease and no one believed me that I had, it and I knew something was wrong. And the doctor would not give me the blood test unless he looked at my butt because that's where I found a tick. And I said, there's no mark. 
I've looked at it. You're not going to look at my butt. Like he was, he was a student teacher. And I was like, you will not look at my butt. No. And like, we're going back and forth. He's like, I'm not giving you the blood test unless I see the air. I'm like, no, give me the blood test. And he's like, fine. I'm gonna have your mom look at it. I'm like, fine. (laughs) They gave me the blood test. I had previous exposure to Lyme's disease, probably from the time that I was uh, very small because I grew up on a farm in a wooded area. So all of this time of being lethargic, playing soccer, and then collapsing into bed with my uniform still on and knowing something was wrong, but being labeled a hypochondriac by multiple people. And I had Lyme's disease. I'm still affected by it because it's been in my system for decades now, but I just very vividly remember that like, no, you will do this. There is something wrong. Same thing happened when I broke my arm and they, they said, no, it's fine. And then they called two hours later and said, you need to come in for a cast. Isn't that incredible? I mean, what, so it just makes me wonder, you know, what is it in our society? And I don't know if men are having the same experience or young boys are having the same experience at 16, but what is it in our society that we're going to dismiss women uh, at a young age, you know, again, how do we have equity and parity anywhere mm-hmm. if you're not believing us? And what is that telling you at a young age? Um, and you know, how embedded that can become as we start to age and we go through different things in the system, or, you know, if you hadn't sat there and been firm with the doctor, how could that show up in other places in your life? Mm-hmm. And I think about, you know, I even think about, um, you know, my first, one of my first jobs, um, coming out of college and grad school. And I worked for this company and, um, I had prepared this presentation and we were going into the, um, client meeting and the guy I worked for took the presentation off of me. And I was like, Oh, we're not going to co-present this. And he said, no, you just sit there and look pretty. Mm. I was in my early twenties when that happened. And, you know, you think how, you know, we're kind of instilling that, um, you know, just like, oh, just sit pretty and don't advocate for yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, you little girl, you don't know what you're talking Mm -hmm. about. How could you know your body? Um, How could you know? No, we we are the authority. We are the medical practitioners. And we're going to tell you, like, it's ridiculous. So, yeah. So I think going back to, you know, my young self, I would say, you know, stand your ground. Mm -hmm. And I think this is also, there's so much going on in society right now with, um, you know, young women and the role models that they're seeing in the world. And it's disturbing, frankly. And so, you know, you just think about how can we really equip young women to have a voice, to know their voice matters and to take ownership for over their bodies and themselves um, and to step into that power. So, yeah. So what would you say to someone who's not a young woman, but has uh, interactions or access to young women to have an influence? How would you best equip them to plant some seeds for positive change? Oh my gosh. That's like, wow, Lauren, you're like dropping this, uh, (laughs) dropping this question bomb on me. Um, you know, I think, I think it's really important that regardless of what your role is in society, you know, there are people that are watching you and we're in this interconnected world today where you can see and listen to podcasts, TikTok, Facebook. You know, I would just tell people that are in a position where they do have access to young women is that um, really be mindful of how you're presenting yourself because they are watching. And, you know, for people like you and I, where we own our own small businesses, 
these young women need to see more of us and less of like the influencer style, um, you know, whatever they are in society, like leverage, I think really help these young women to use their brains and to use their, um, to get the confidence they need to really make an impact in the world through, um, becoming some type of a businesswoman, you know, becoming some, a scientist, becoming someone who's really doing good in the world and creating an impact because, um, this world needs more, more people like that. I so agree. When, when I hear you talk, I'm like, we all have access because this is an interconnected world. And if we're not modeling the change we want to see, if we're not aligning with integrity, then it's being shaped for us. And if we are not building it, then we're asleep at the wheel. So it's time to wake up and be very intentional and deliberate if we do want to see positive change. I agree. Uh, in all facets of society, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard sometimes though. It feel, it can feel heavy. It can feel like, oh, wow. You know, um, do I have to be perfect all the time or do I need to watch what I say? Um, but I think, you know, as long as you are awake, um, and aware and, um, really can, you know, make a positive impact to others. That's it's important. I'm going to add another a there awake, aware, and aligned and aligned. Yes. Alignment is big. You know, it's very interesting. Um, even having this conversation because this right now, what we're talking about from period to pause is not my current business. However, I am creating a place for women to be able to go to ask the questions they want to ask, to have real information, to have access to real experts. And, um, you know, it's, it's a real passion for me. There's a fire under me about this and about changing the system. And, um, you know, I've, I've been kind of like, do I talk about this? Do I not? And what I've recognized is that this is exactly in alignment with who I am, what I want to give voice to in the world. And, um, you know, who I want to support and how I want to change the world and the narrative therein. So that alignment is key because even if this isn't my economic engine right now or my money-making machine, um, it's, it's needed. And yeah. I know that. And I think that's so important because a lot of people get into entrepreneurship for many different reasons. And they're like, but I got to make money. I got to support it. But if you're not fueling your bigger purpose and passion, then what, what is financial abundance when you don't have conscious, conscious abundance? Like we're not, mm-hmm. we're not having this all aligned, like activating, then it's surface level transactions. So we have yeah. to, we have to really feed that fix. Mm-hmm. It's so true. It is so true. And, you know, I think sometimes, well, I know for me, for a fact, when I was younger, I wasn't necessarily asking myself these questions mm-hmm. of, you know, am I conscious? Is this what I want to be in the world? Is how is this impacting other people? Um, you know, as we were just saying, we're all interconnected. And so what each and every single one of us do has an impact on somebody somewhere in the world. We can't deny that. Mm-hmm. So um, it is important. And I think for young women too, to start asking themselves those questions, uh, even if it means you don't necessarily fit in with your peer group. (laughs) You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. we need people who are outliers right now in order to shift our level of consciousness in this world. Yeah. My mom raised me 
And I had a lot of issues in high school feeling like I belonged. And she said, sometimes awesome needs to stand alone. Mm. And that has always stayed with me. I'm alone because I'm awesome right now. (laughs) Right. They're just not there yet. Yeah. And, you know, especially, and I know we're talking about young women right now, but especially there's a lot of peer pressure on social media right now on, on how you need to look and who you need to be. And, um, I don't think we need more of certain things right now. We need that those, those people standing alone to be and being awesome. Yeah. I think we need the great shedding to happen. Like enough with the stuff, enough with the filters, like let's go back to the core of who we are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out over the next couple of years, because I think there is something coming. There absolutely is something coming. I'm, I am uh, going to make my predictions and put them in a sealed envelope and see if it happens. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have your little, uh, t- what is it? Time, um, my time is, what is it? Time, time capsule. capsule. Yeah. yeah. And dig it Old up record. in a couple. Oh my gosh. You should really do that. And then date market, um, and do a podcast on it and you don't have to say what it is, but just you know, do something on that. And then in two years or whenever you want to open that is be like, this is their big reveal. And this is like, what has actually come true in the world. And then I'll do a yeah. voiceover of completely off on this one, but got it here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That would be fascinating. Uh, I so like I hope I'll do that. <laughs> right. Um, especially those in our community and those who are entrepreneurs. Um, I feel like if I were to put something in your time capsule, uh, my prediction is that in two years, I would have already uh, testified in front of Congress <laughs> around women's health care, um, put some regulations in for IVF. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I didn't mention yet that also has me fired up is that when I went in for my two-week post-op um, after my hysterectomy in November, so that was would have been December, I was in my two-week post-op, um, my husband and I were sitting talking to the doctor and she had shown me, um, she brought out these pictures. So I saw my uterus (laughs) after it was taken out of my body. And then she showed me the insides of my body where all the scar tissue was. I also had stage four endometriosis. So she showed me where all the flare ups were in my body. And my uterus was five times the size of a normal woman's, um, which you can imagine. So with what I have with adenomyosis, it's extremely painful because you have um, endometrin, which grows in the muscle linings, um, the walls of your muscles in your uterus. And so that's why it becomes so painful because it's not supposed to be there. Um, and it can cause all sorts of other issues because it can spread your endometriosis can spread to other organs. It can be very dangerous. So I was at the spot where I was an emergent case. They needed to get my uterus out, um, for fear that, um, something else could happen or it could lead to, uh, other diseases or death. So I needed to get it out. And, um, anyway, at my two weeks, two week post-op, you know, we're asking the doctor questions. She's showing the scar tissue and where things were. And my husband said, you know, all those rounds of IVF, when Amanda is sharing what she's feeling and going through, why didn't they diagnose her? And the doctor's response was, oh, you were a money-making machine to them. They didn't want to diagnose you because they wouldn't make more money out of you to come back and do more rounds of IVF. Mm -hmm. Whoa. Yep. Like 
I was just like, holy, um, I would curse right now, but I don't know if I can curse on your podcast. Oh, you absolutely can. Um, <laughs> I, was like, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? You know, I mean, this is where we are. This is how little we care about women and their bodies. So they basically, I was get I almost, so I don't, Gabrielle Union has the same disease I have. And I heard a couple of years ago, she was on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday with her husband, Dwayne Wade. And she was the first person I heard in the public domain talk about adenomyosis and her going through several rounds of IVF and it almost killing her. And I was in the exact same situation. So it's infuriating. And, um, and so part of what I want to do is put some regulation on the industry that is IVF. Because there probably isn't a lot and there's probably many other women who have gone undiagnosed, misdiagnosed, and, you know, they're in the place where I was, where it was literally breaking down their bodies. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's that piece of it. The other thing, which I hope your readers, your readers, your, no, they're not going to read this. (laughs) Your listeners here, we got our insurance bill in, I guess it was, I can't remember if it was December, early January, one bill for my surgery, $196,000. That did not include the bill from um, my anesthesiologist because that's a separate bill. $196,000. That's how much the surgery cost. That's how much it would have cost had we not had insurance. So I just want to bring that up because any woman in this country who is in the stage that I was in, which is an emergent case, I needed this to happen to be alive. Um, you know, and you don't have health insurance. Mm-hmm. This is going to bring you to your knees. Yeah. Um, this something has to change. I was sharing with somebody over the weekend, uh, the bill, the, that dollar amount. And, and she was like, are you, you mean like $19,000? I was like, no, no almost Mm $200,000. That is ridiculous. So, and, and she said to me, my dog got her uterus removed and it was $500. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I get it. You know, it's not quite the same because of the intricacies of what they had to go in and do. And there's a robot that they use, but, um, that's insane. I mean, and that's what, you know, if this were a man's disease, if this were a man's issue, would we be at the stage where we are, where there's still little research on this? Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, most of the researchers in this country that are looking into medical diseases are men. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's no fault of theirs. Thank you for doing the work. But, you know, we have a system and a structure, which is set up where you have men doing research on a women's disease. Mm-hmm. And we don't have our voice at the table when it comes to the things that need to happen. I mean, I jokingly say, like, if you've ever had a mammogram, um, of course, a man must have made this machine. I know. <laughs> I mean, well, and, and the annual exam for a woman, like uh, who the hell came up with that? And why isn't uh, there a better option? Uh, right. So, okay. I'm, I'm going to share something else because now that I'm, I'm, I've got to be in my bonnet about this. <laughs> um, so before, um, my surgery, so I'm in the state of California and they require that you get a hysteroscopy with biopsy prior to this surgery. And I think there's there's a time limit on it. So you have to have it within 
so many days of your surgery and its requirement before you can get your uterus taken out. Now I understand the concept behind it because if I did have some cancer cells in there, it's a different surgery. And you know, there has to be a surgeon trained in that to come in and remove that because you don't want cancer cells spreading. The kicker of this is that you're awake for this procedure. So my husband was in the room with me and, um, Long story short, she does the hysteroscopy. So I want you to know that they're putting a needle up you that's this big into your body and they're using that. So, you know, it's still the era of COVID. So I have my mask on, my husband's standing next to me. I'm holding onto his hand. I'm streaming crying because this is the most painful thing I've ever experienced. And I literally like afterwards, the doctor, she's like, I know it's only going to be five minutes. I know it's going to be, it's only going to be five minutes. Are you kidding me? Like you can't put women to sleep for that. I mean, it was, I, I honestly, if anybody's listening to this and you have to get one, just demand you get put to sleep. I don't care that it's only for five minutes. It is the most painful, disgusting procedure. Actually mine took longer because of something else, but um, it's the most painful, disgusting procedure you've ever had. So if we go back to talking about the medical industrial complex with the dollar amount we just paid for this mm-hmm. surgery, not to mention the fact that women are expected to endure this pain, there is no way uh, on God's green earth that any man would be able to endure what we endure on a monthly basis during our medical exams. Um, and you know, if this were a man's disease, I guarantee you there would be a cure for it. Mm-hmm. There, there is a, um, like belt that uh, makes the muscles cramp up. And I think that it probably should be a pre prereq for any doctor going through school to have to sit through that. Y- yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, to be like, oh, wait, this is, this is a normal level of pain, but this is what women experience when they have adenomyosis, fibroids, endometriosis, fill in the blank of whatever mm-hmm. else you experience. Um, and this is what you're enduring yeah. and you're going to work, you're raising children, you're walking your dog, well, you know, whatever you're taking care of your parents, whatever it is you're doing on top of everything else that we're facing. And also nobody believes that you're experiencing it. Yeah. For 20 years. Yeah. So I think (laughs) exactly what you're talking about is there's a lack of understanding, but also empathy at the core level of being able to actually put yourself in someone's shoes. And I think given the medical industrial complex, when it is a billable cycle for insurance, people don't slow down to connect to the human. They are in a transaction. And I think this is like the the necessary route down and the most successful doctors out there, the ones that actually find solutions and build amazing practices are the ones that take the time to understand the patient. Yeah, absolutely. And to really, again, going back to seeing the humanity in the patient, I will say that my doctor here in California that did my surgery is an incredible doctor. Um, She's a great surgeon. She has a great bedside manner. She listens, she understands, uh, what women are going through. And, you know, it could be because, um, she's also a woman of childbearing, uh, a, you know, of childbearing age. She has kids herself. Um, but you know, she, she gets it, she understands it. And I think we need more practitioners, uh, in the world like that, who are taking the time to understand their patients mm-hmm. and who are listening. Um, I will say though, I did have um, a very frank conversation with her uh, about her front office staff mm. and their lack of empathy. Ooh. 
and I think that too is, you know, so long story short, my surgery got canceled and it got moved. And because I didn't know I needed clear, I needed neuro clearance, um, because I have two small aneurysms at the base of my brain and this surgery you're inverted. Uh, and so for me, my surgery took three hours. Some people, it takes longer, um, probably an hour and a half to two hours is the norm because of the complexity of mine. It took three. So my head is underneath my heart for three hours. So that becomes um, a challenge if you have any type of neurological anything. Mm -hmm. So long story short, my surgery was canceled the morning of, so I'd already fasted. I'd already gone through everything. And, um, because her team didn't tell me like, you know, I was supposed to know, I guess, read somebody's mind that I needed neuro clearance. Um, and her team was extremely rude about it Mm -hmm. and had been rude to me when I was trying to book my surgery and all of these things. And, you know, you can imagine like it's nerve wracking. You're being told you have this major surgery. And if it doesn't happen soon, your, it it could be a life or death situation. Mm -hmm. So if my uterus would have exploded or burst or something like that, which she was very convinced was going to happen, um, in a short space of time that could have been, you know, a a whole other situation or an emergent situation where I literally have to go into the hospital within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So I ended up having, um, and so this is also why I get on my soapbox about this because, um, you know, these problems are very real and who, you know, the, the patients that that doctor's office is seeing, you know, there are people there who are pregnant. Um, there are people there who are trying to get pregnant. You know, there's a whole range and host of emotions of anybody that's experiencing anything who goes to that doctor's office. Mm -hmm. So I ended up having about a half hour conversation with my doctor saying, it's not okay. The, the treatment that I have had from your front office staff. And she said, well, I didn't, no. And, and how often do you speak to them? Because, you know, I was trying to get confirmation and because of COVID things were changing. And, um, anyway, I said, I don't know if you know, but I call your office two to three times a day and I speak to them two or three times a day. So I have been speaking to them two to three times a day for the past month, at least. And nobody told me I needed this neuro clearance. I was livid. Um, and so anyway, um, she kind of came back on me and said, well, they need to be you know, um, have strong personalities to advocate for you and um, to make sure you're getting through the system. And I said, oh, I understand having strong personalities. Um, I said, but what they also need to do is have empathy and your staff shows zero empathy. And it's time you probably have a conversation with them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we sit in a space where we work in organizations, right? We work with leaders, we equip them with the toolkit um, to empower their people And, you know, I kind of said, I don't know if you know what I do for a living, but it's not okay that women are coming through in an already emotional state and your staff is downright rude. I said, your staff has hung up the phone on me without so much as a goodbye several times. Um, And I said, there is a level of frustration all of us are feeling right now. And I understand your staff is trying to put people um, into surgeries and they have calendars to juggle, but if they don't like their jobs and if they don't want to interact with people, then maybe they should go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I'll t- I told her, I'll, I said, I'll tell you, I have had other appointments. Like I had to go, um, you know, get an MRI for my brain and the team there so kind, the front desk staff, mm-hmm. so like the text that everybody I was interacting with, And I was like, there's something wrong when you think that that's how your employees need to show up, particularly when there are such sensitive issues that we're going through Mm -hmm. and we have to feel comfortable in an environment um, 
where somebody is, we're putting our lives in the hands of somebody else. And I told her, I said, I know you're an amazing surgeon. Um, and I said, I said, if this were the case right now, and I actually had an option, I would not have you operate on me right now, not because of you, but because your team is so rude. Mm -hmm. And I said, but now I'm back into a corner and I don't have that luxury. I can't start the process all over again, because if I wait, then my health is at serious risk. Mm -hmm. So these are also things that need to happen. I can imagine going into doctor's offices, medical practices, giving them the toolkit to be able to have kind, thoughtful, human-based conversations with the people that are coming in to, to book their appointments and to work with their practitioners. Yeah. And I also see a heavy need in the medical training field too, of, of having this toolkit. So beyond medical professional uh, trained in um, actually doing the surgery, but like having the support staff have that same toolkit and be able to apply it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I understand it's frustrating. Those jobs can be frustrating, right? You, you are sometimes dealing with patients who are rude or, um, you know, people are upset or, you know, the calendar system isn't working. The hospitals aren't getting back to you to get an OR, you know, whatever that is, but there's a way in which you can show up uh, in the workplace to treat people better and to understand what they might be experiencing. Yeah. Well, I am hopeful that things will be different because I know that you're on it and you won't let it go until you see that change. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think I'm like a dog with a bone right now. So uh... I I think so, but it's, it's a good, a good uh, place for you to be with a very focused mission. So if people want to learn more about what you're up to or want to get in touch with you on this topic or, or Vino Karma or, or the strategy, what, where can they find you? So um, I'm easy to find. I'm Amanda at amandaladen.com. Stay tuned. Our website for uh, period to pause will be launching soon. So that will be a great place to get in touch with us and for us to help uh, women on their journeys, wherever they are. Um, And then, yeah, you can also find me on LinkedIn, um, Facebook. And I hope that um, some women do come join our movement to change the system. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time and for sharing your story and what's got you fired up. And uh, (laughs) we will definitely stay tuned to see what you're up to. Oh, I I appreciate it, Lauren. And I appreciate the time and you giving um, me the space and a platform to share this story and, and also, you know, to be part of the change. Awesome. All the Spitfires out there, you keep being awesome.